Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. you guys do you freak out like until you get up here and then you get up here and you're fine it's just me I got this like hot and cold thing going on anyways my name's Neil I'm one of the pastors here I'll be preaching this morning still it is so good to see you it is so so good to worship with you this morning guys um she's going to be giving out long and aggressive hugs all morning uh feel free to hand them out if you're a visitor here and you just like hugs, feel free to come over and participate. (laughs) Guys, you will be happy to know that God has been incredibly kind to Priscilla since her injury. She has this incredible new motivation. She's making phenomenal progress in her training, and I am just so proud of you. I remember she uh, called me a little while ago, and she had just relocated to Fullerton at her new place, and she got this new PT and she uh, had her first really good workout, which can also feel like a really terrible experience depending on how you look at it. And I remember her talking to me, she's just lit. She's like, just my shoulders are so sore and she's just talk, we're just discussing her training. It's one of the things I'm helping her with. And in a roundabout way, she was asking me, you know, do I just push through this? And I don't know if you guys know this, but one of the most critical components to any athletic development program is rest days, is, is recovery. Um, when you're trying to grow someone's work capacity or their ability to perform or to improve, um, what do I mean by work capacity? So like for Syl, when she first got started, she could stand for about five seconds on one leg before she needed to sit down. Now she's at about five minutes. It's tremendous progress, right? So good. Um, When you are trying to increase this, uh, or any form of physical development, one of the most critical components of an athletic program is recovery and rest days. You see, one of three things will generally happen if rest is not a strategic and well-executed component of their program. One of these uh, outcomes is basically guaranteed. One of the outcomes that could happen is injury from overtraining, right? This is when something physically in your body breaks and the program has to stop until you heal and recover. Another outcome, and this is probably the most um, beneficial one, is just a plateau. You know, you're not resting, you keep beating your body up, and so your progress generally stalls out. And third is burnout. You get frustrated from the lack of progress you're seeing because of the work you invest and you end up giving up. Um, This is not just about SIL. This does have a point to what we're talking about today. We're in our fifth week of the Gospel of Luke series, and we're going to be unpacking the ancient and sacred practice instituted and demonstrated by God known as rest days, or in the more biblical term, the rhythm of Sabbath. Today's sermon is titled, Restorative Rest, Refusing the Relentless Rhythm of Culture. The problem that we are unpacking today is how do we rediscover the lost art of the Sabbath rhythm? Or, more specifically, how do we establish strategic rhythms of rest that allow us to heal and to recover so that we avoid injury or burnout and we're able to continue uh, in the progress in the journey of becoming more like Jesus, also known as our sanctification and discipleship 
still, it's great to have you with us this morning. So proud of you. Guys, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1. We're going to be covering verse 1 through 11. Um, And it says this. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, answered them, have you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue, and he was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with a shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? He looked around at them all, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Guys, this is our roadmap for today. These are the three points that we're going to be going through. I want to address the question, do we really need a Sabbath rhythm or rest days? Uh, Where do we find not just rest for our physical bodies, but deep rest and recovery? And then I'm going to suggest um, a strategic prescription for deep and effective rest days or just kind of coach you through the Sabbath. So point number one, do we really need a Sabbath rhythm or rest days? If we look at verses one and two, we see Jesus and his disciples confronted by religious Pharisees and they ask Jesus, I love this, they ask the Son of God this question, why do you do what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus and his disciples were accused of breaking the Sabbath for two reasons. One, plucking grain, and two, rubbing it in their hands. Um, What you need to know, and will help you understand Jesus' response to, to, uh, excuse me, Jesus' response to them, to the Pharisees, uh, is that in the Torah, basically the Jewish Old Testament, it does state in Exodus and in Deuteronomy that you shall keep the Sabbath day holy. Six days you shall work, and that you should cease all work on the seventh Sabbath day. Uh, It is the fourth commandment, and it is the day that God said to keep it holy unto the Lord. The problem is that the Bible never gives a definition of work. I find that very interesting, by the way. What the religious leaders then began to do is to create hundreds of additional laws known as the Mishnah, hence the reasoning for the Pharisees' accusation. There is no law in the Torah about snacking on the Sabbath. You will not find it in there. Jesus was, in fact, not in violation of any of God's laws, but was violating the human traditions created by man in an attempt to perfectly execute the Sabbath. Jesus was pro-Torah, but anti-Mishnah, and he was obedient unto death to the will of the Father, but took no time to entertain um, the expectations of the self-righteous religious class known as the Pharisees. The problem with this 
in the first century, one way that we can interpret this passage is that it may seem like Jesus somehow is overriding the concept of Sabbath uh, and rest. Even his claim, I am Lord of this day, may be mistakenly taken as the Sabbath must just not be that important to Jesus. So the question that we are left with is this, is the Sabbath necessary? We even see in Paul's writings in the New Testament that no one should even judge one another and how they choose to participate in this sacred and holy practice of rest from all work. Do we need it in our current context? Here are just a few interesting socioeconomic data points that have shifted over the last couple of decades. Uh, Here are four data points or socioeconomic trends referenced by Timothy Keller in his sermon to Redeemer Church about work and rest, addressing the aggravations found in our modern society. Uh, Point A, job security. Um, Increasingly in a variety of industries, positions are created Uh, Positions that are created that are not instantly profitable to the bottom line are quickly eliminated. Uh, This means that job security itself is fragile uh, and more difficult than ever before. Uh, Increasing wage disparity, I found this really interesting. About 50 years ago, the difference between someone at the top of a moderate to large organization versus someone at the bottom was about 10 to 20 times the wage difference. So if they made $1, they made 10 or 20. Now, that difference is about 10 times that. So if you make $1, they make 100 to 200, all right? So what does this have to do with the need for rest, all right? The people at the top are basically, it's like, hey, you're gonna live for this company. Like, we'll give you a bed here, a gym here. There's just this expectation in those roles that you are gonna work an enormous amount of hours. And then at these lower positions, the wages are so low that they don't actually provide enough for basic living, so they're working multiple jobs, all right? So whether you are at the top or the bottom, everyone is working more. Technology, ooh, technology. Uh, We can work from anywhere, which means work has the possibility to invade every single area of our life, right? It can sneak up on you, you know, that phone beeps, You don't turn your notifications off, you get these alerts, uh, and this could lead to a constant state of work. And this last one is the most fascinating. Um, Let me just read it. It says, uh, this is about kind of the evolution of American culture. And we just kind of lead the way. Other cultures have followed in our footsteps, but we are the front runners on this one. It says, cultural analysts have uh, had said with some significant degree of universal agreement that whereas traditional societies said you received your meaning in life through your family and, ba- and you basically fulfilled a relatively prescribed social role, either as a mother or a father, a sister or brother, a husband or wife, a son or daughter. Uh, and work itself was just not that important. You just needed to make a living to provide for your family because family was the, at the center of significance. Um, This is how every culture has functioned for the last few thousand years or so. But we have become the first society in the history of humanity saying that you define yourself by deciding what you want to be and then going out and attaining it. This may sound familiar. Um, Then and only then will you have significance, which means connected to our concept of work, there has never been more psychological, emotional, and social pressure to to find fulfillment in it, or for at least it to be very lucrative. There has never been a culture like this before, 
so shaped by consumerism and capitalism. So what does this mean? If you look at points A, B, and C, it basically illustrates the need for physical rest. There is less time for rest and the greater need of it. But point D means uh, we emotionally, on the inside, have less ability to rest and relax than ever before. There is a need for practical physical rest, but there is a deeper need for a deeper rest. John Tyson, in his book, Beautiful Resistance, I love this guy, um, uh, in his chapter, Rest Must Resist Exhaustion, articulates what many have felt and seen, and this is after he covers a slew of statistics isolated to our nation about how we work more hours per week, take fewer vacations, have less benefits, retire later, et cetera, et cetera. And these are all comparing wealth, relatively wealthy so people with similar economic impact to America. He even goes on to talk about how this is affecting the health statistics or our bodies, right? And just brace yourself. This is like the punchline in his stating the problem, but it says this, our busyness is destroying our peace, eliminating margin, and deeply affecting our bothers. Whether you are a C-suite executive or a stay-at-home mom, we, uh, we all feel perpetually overwhelmed. We're experiencing karoshi, that's a Japanese term for death by work, uh, in slow motion. Our pace of life and obsession with accomplishing more are also beginning to touch our souls. Many today are suffering from a form of spiritual karoshi. Our souls are slowly dying from being overwhelmed and neglected. Wow, okay. Anyhow, um, guys, this is not just a 21st century problem. Sabbath was given to humanity at century zero. And it was given because of the problem of not just physical restlessness, but addressing the spiritual restlessness that is found in each and every human that has, is, and will walk this earth. Um, Augustine, um, not my son, the saint, um, once wrote, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Christ. Is that in there? Okay. Yeah, that is real small. Anyways. Um, there is a deeper rest that is needed more than relaxation and physical rest. In our culture, because of the departure from tradition into the modern consumer-driven age, we have a great and difficult challenge of not just resting our bodies, but keeping our souls from striving. We are constantly asked to prove our worth, to show the world that we have attained the thing that we set out to become. I read from a lot of successful entrepreneurs. Uh, most of them are unsaved. I don't let them influence me. I just find it interesting what they talk about. And this hit my inbox this Thursday. It said, and there's a quote, the world rewards you for value added, not time spent. It's what you produce, not who you are. It's not about your efforts, or what you care about. It's the results that define you. Um, this is the mantra of the American workforce and entrepreneurialism. It is what I believed before I believed in Jesus. And what it produces is this idolatrous identity rooted in workism. What is workism? Workism is defined. It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. That our, cultural, that our ultimate value is defined by how we add value to the marketplace. This is a recipe for disaster given the idolatrous nature of the human heart, this desire to strive and self-reliance and self-worship. I believe that as a culture, we're actually good at relaxation, bringing, uh, 
binging, splurging, checking out, but this is not what satisfies our souls. There is a practical need for physical rest, but, there, um, but greater than that is the need for deep intimacy with our maker. Think of it this way. So, like, there's basically multiple stages of sleep. You have a couple categories that all fall under light sleep, and then you have REM sleep, okay? When you're in light sleep, um, your body is resting, okay? That's what it's doing. But in REM sleep, this is the sleep you don't get when you're on prescription sleep medications. This is the... Sorry, I'm I'm going off on tangents. I've studied a lot of sleep. But in deep sleep, things like your central nervous system detoxes, right? If you don't get deep sleep, you will eventually start hallucinating. You will see things that are not there, all right? Um, Also, let's say you had a fight with your wife about something really dumb. You were really tired. Um, You go to bed, get poor sleep. You wake up, that's still like DEFCON 11. You know, I can't believe you know, whatever, something was left out. It doesn't matter, okay? When you get proper sleep, your body kind of um, categorizes things emotionally. So our emotional health is connected to this. Um, And a lot of other things, like our actual health, there's some statistics that are coming out of that if you miss a lot of deep sleep, you're more prone to get things like cancer, stuff like that, anyhow. Um, So, uh, to land this first point, What is up with the Sabbath? The answer is we need some version of it. Physical rest is somewhat readily available, but it is the light sleep of Sabbath. Where do we find the deep, healing, emotionally repairing, the life-giving REM rest of Sabbath? Point number two, where do we find deep restorative rests? Uh, Let's move a few inches in the text. Let's look at uh, verses three and four. Um, Jesus has this gangster comeback. I just love his kung fu. It is so, so strong. Um, He does not mess around with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It's kind of like entering someone else's dojo and challenging their sensei to an honors match. It's super cool. So anyhow, verse 3. Jesus answers them, Have you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, taking the consecrated bread... And he ate it, what was unlawful for the, only lawful for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. See, here we have Jesus referencing a historical text, 1 Samuel 21, in which David and his men were fleeing for their lives. In hunger, they ended up going into the tabernacle, and inside it, there was uh, the place for the showbread, this is fancy, uh, which was the bread of presence, which was in the holy place. This is super special bread. Um, and uh, this was all clearly laid out in the Torah as a part of ceremonial worship laws, uh, and they were not supposed to eat it. Only priests could do that, and what did David do? He ate it, gave some to his buddies, all right? Jesus is pointing out that David was never once condemned for this. Um, this is how good Jesus' kung fu is. It's great. Uh, he is going, uh, he's doing the same thing to the Pharisees that he did with the devil Uh, When he was tempted, he's using nothing but God's word to combat their accusations. And for us, he is offering us an invitation. Think about this. Um, Here's what I believe Jesus is saying. Never in scripture do you see moral laws set aside when you're in a bind. Something like, well, you know, you were busy and your wife wasn't around, so I guess adultery is fine, or... Uh, I know those shiny idols are really hard to pass up. They put them right by the register. So you worship Baal now, that's okay. Um, No way. 
It's never allowed. Does it happen in the Bible? Yes. Are there consequences? Always. Moral laws are never set aside, but what about ceremonial and worship laws? Moral laws will never depart from us. Jesus said, don't think that I have come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. One day we won't struggle to uphold them. One day the law of God will be fully transcribed on our sinless hearts, but the ceremony and worship laws like fasting and Sabbath, check this out. They're, this, according to Keller, I'm just saying this is profound, they're provisional. What does this mean? In other words, they are temporary. What do I mean by that? Meaning that one day they will come to an end when something comes along that makes them obsolete. When the thing that they point to actually arrives, they will no longer be necessary. And the next breath in Jesus' response, in verse 4, he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the God of deep, perfect, and true rest. This is what he was saying. I am the thing that makes the Sabbath itself obsolete one day. You don't need to stop snacking. You just need to take a break from your work and be with me. There's a theme growing through chapters 5 and 6. Just like Nick mentioned last week from Luke 5, when Jesus was asked about why his disciples weren't fasting, he said it's because the bridegroom was with them. They didn't need to fast to get closer to God because he was right next to them. This is why in the New Testament and under the New Covenant, Paul writes about not judging people about how they choose to participate in the Sabbath. Jesus is... Jesus is pointing out that he is the one the Sabbath was hinting and pointing towards. We find Sabbath rest in the God of rest. We find peace and shalom in near proximity to the Prince of Peace. The whole situation is ironic because the practice of deep rest has been there to help us and to lead us to the one whose burden is easy and yoke is light. Tell all who are weary and heavy laden to come to me. <clears throat> he is the REM sleep for our restless soul. He is the one that sets our emotions in order and repairs the in our innermost being. Only he can provide the end game of rest age, which is restoration. It's only when we stand as disciples in his presence can we resist the accusations that tempt us to prove our soul's worth. Let's keep going. Verses 6 through 11. It says this. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue, and he was teaching, and the man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. <clears throat> Not crying. There's something in my throat. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath day. This is so dumb. Um, God, the guys, uh, Pharisees are in the gospel for juxtaposition. It's just like what they do, learn from their mistakes. Anyhow. Um, but Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and he stood there. Jesus said to 
said to them, I ask you which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or evil, to save life or to destroy it. He looked around at all of them and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so. His hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. How dare he? Why did both Mark and Luke order these stories in this way? They're almost identical. The Gospels and the Jewish writings use a lot of structure in them to, uh, to imply emphasis. And there is a reason why these stories unfold the way that they do. Um, do you guys remember a couple weeks ago when Sean was preaching from Luke uh, chapter 4 as Jesus unrolled the scroll from Isaiah and read aloud that the year of the Lord's favor had begun that the Lord had anointed Jesus to bring justice and healing and vision and restoration. What day of the week was that? It was the Sabbath. Do you know that in Luke 6, the text we just read with the man with the shrivel's hand that Jesus healed on the Sabbath, that that is similar to the vast majority of Jesus' healings? Most of them take place on the Sabbath. Did you know that the word in the New Testament for healing, the one that we see here, and the word for this, uh, salvation, the word soteria, it's the same word being used most of the time, where it says, Jesus healed the man. He says, your faith has saved you. He's literally using the same Greek word. Um, guys, there is, and this is such a big concept. I hope I'm able to land this um, What I'm trying to say is that there is this beautiful picture that is connecting our relationship with our Savior that brings our healing and our salvation that has something to do with Sabbath. And so for us, is it a defined day of the week? No. Is there freedom in it? Do we judge one another? No. But it is this glorious invitation to be be with the one who brings healing and salvation. Guys, the Sabbath the other seven, seven annual festivals that deal with rest, rest and restoration. Guys, in Israel, there was this pattern that even on the seventh year, there was this mini jubilee where we would rest the land and we, we would forgive debts and we would allow people out of captivity. And every seventh anniversary or every 49th year, this was done nationally at this epic scale to where if you had lost your land, it was restored to you. If you had debt, it was forgiven. If you were a slavery in captivity, you were released. All of these things, the Sabbath rhythm, the way that this story is being told point to the one that had arrived, the one that was being questioned about if it was lawful. It is this beautiful invitation for us to commune with God. The Sabbath is the prophetic practice of stopping all striving and work to spend a single day or a shorter time if necessary to enjoy Jesus as if we were fully in his presence and if this broken world had been made completely whole. What we practice in our Sabbath rhythm, whatever it looks like, is the thing that we will experience in full glory when sin is gone. And that is what we aim to do. In this passage, in this passage Luke is showing us that we Sabbath with Jesus, we feast with him, the king of kings, and find nourishment, healing, and salvation. So guys, these, uh, let's move to our third point. This is the strategic prescription for deep and effective rest days, or just Sabbath. 
Uh, thanks to leaders like Pete Scazzaro and John Mark Comer and, John, uh, and even John Tyson. Uh, there are some really biblical and helpful tools in teaching about the Sabbath. We're going to look at four different biblical references uh, to the term Sabbath, and they, they give an excellent guide to how to grow in the discipline of finding deep rest in Christ. And these are the four things we're going to look at. We're going to look at stopping, resting, delighting, and worshiping. So stop. We see an Exodus in Deuteronomy explains that we shall stop or cease all work on the, on the Sabbath. <clears throat> that all work will be done in six, and the seventh we will aim to stop it. <clears throat> so step one is to cease or stop working. This does not mean on the Sabbath we simply do all the work that we don't get paid to do. CJ used to call these tasks life admin. I miss that guy. I love him. Um, we don't just stop our paid work. We stop all work. This means I rake my leaves on Friday afternoon. Uh, this means we don't do laundry on the Sabbath. And here, here's a fun fact. Um, did you know that simply thinking about work produces the same hormonal and emotional response of doing the work? So we stop the work, we stop thinking about the work, and we rest. In Genesis 2, I love this, it says that God was satisfied with all the work that he had done, and on the seventh day he rested. And I'm like, he never gets tired. This is just like, but it, it's literally, he's, he's showing us this is what we do. This is how you live, right? Uh, it means we uh, rest physically, we sleep in, we don't rush or hurry anywhere. We rest emotionally, practicing releasing the illusion of control. Resting the body should need no explanation based off of most of the time you guys arrive at church. Um, but what about the emotional rest? Um, Jacqueline and I try not to do any deep problem solving, um, difficult, we don't have difficult talks or even intercessory prayer on the Sabbath. Uh, we rest our mind and don't try to figure out, um, there's some misspellings in my notes, uh, figure out how, how you're going to get that complex situation settled. Um, don't spend the Sabbath time talking through deep relational issues. Some may think this is phony, um, but just think about it. Like on Christmas morning, if you had a little fight before, it's a special time. Don't ruin it. Have that conversation later, right? Um, <laughs> After you are rested, it'll probably go better. Um, and yes, even intercessory prayer is contending for a desired outcome. This means uh, when we pray, we don't do intercessory prayer for the prayer warriors on the Sabbath. We trust that God has those situations and is in his capable hands. Rest your body, your mind, and allow your relationships to rest on the Sabbath. And this is one thing, um, Jacqueline went and saw Syl the other day, and she was just telling me this story, and it was the anniversary of your wedding. And she was just so kind. Syl just does that. She just teaches your soul in her conversations. She just, she just downloads in there, and she said this. She said, you know, I remember those last few years, and I remember all the scenarios that I had thought through and how worried and kind of a, like a fearful I was and how anxious that made me, but in the trial itself, there was grace there. And she was teaching Jacqueline that in these imagined outcomes that, that we, we fear and think about, that we work through and we don't rest, that, that God is not necessarily in those imagined fears. He is present in the real trial. 
And guys, this literally, it was like through Jacqueline's conversation, I felt Sills, God's hand come through Jacqueline and come out to me and just give me this gentle rebuke. See, through 2020, we had to do a lot of crisis management, right? We would literally think what could go wrong next, and then it would go wrong next, and then we would implement a plan. And then this was both for CrossFit Meta and Mercy Common. So it was just like over and over again. We did it together as a church seven times, which means I did it 14 individually. And it was just, I got in this practice of like, what is the worst case scenario? How do I imagine that situation? And what do we do? I had a really hard time turning that off. And through preparation, like, maybe not talk to Nick about this one. He had to pray for me on Thursday. I was crying. I was just, this was the thing that God was, one of the things that God was showing me. Rest your worried minds on the Sabbath. Put all those fears away. Lay down the illusion of control. Much worse things can happen that you've never even imagined. (laughs) Seriously. Anyhow. Delight, let's move on. <laughs> In Hebrews, it says the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and ma- or made the Sabbath day happy or delightful. Now, I know it can sound like on the Sabbath is a day where you work really hard not to do a lot of things. Don't look at your phone. Uh, don't do this. Don't do that. But really, the goal with these first two steps are to create space for this one and the next one. This, um, there is a fancy psychological term uh, used nowadays known as pleasure stacking. Fancy, right? Really scientific. Uh, uh, this is what the Sabbath, Sabbath was built for. If you're on a diet, please ditch it on the Sabbath. In fact, choose choice foods that are delightful. If you partake in wine and you have a good bottle tucked away, open it on the Sabbath. If you love coffee, drink all the coffee on the Sabbath. <laughs> If you are married, there is a whole other list of things that you can and should enjoy on the Sabbath. Um, Have fun on the Sabbath. Delight in it. Stop your work. Rest your soul. Acknowledge Christ as the provider and sustainer and giver of all good things. Enjoy it. Enjoy him. D-E-L-I-G-H-T, exclamation point, exclamation point exclamation point, delight on the Sabbath delay. The Lord has blessed it. Jack and I love hanging out with cool people and being outside. We take people on the lake on Sabbath. We blast music we enjoy, and we just play in the water and delight in God's amazing creation. Seriously, the boat I grew up on uh, riding on didn't have all the bells and whistles. This one does. It has cruise control, a wake management system. So at the push of a button, you can wakeboard with the perfect wake or push another button. You can surf behind it. Or you can push a button and go really fast, whatever. Um, All of this makes me sit in a state of wonder and how God, the grand creator, gave us the ability to create such amazing technology. And this amazing technology has one purpose, to be enjoyed. It's for fun. It's not an ambulance. It doesn't fix things. You just enjoy it. Richard Foster wrote that joy is a conscious way of thinking and feeling. This is our aim as we delight on the Sabbath. Our last point, 
and how to find effective rest days, how to enjoy the Sabbath. These words are ordered in this way very, for very practical reasons. Sabbath is not actually translated into worship anywhere in Scripture. It's just what it is when it's done graciously. As we simply stop our work, our striving, our people-pleasing, our worrying, and we rest our body, our minds, and relationship, and as we delight in Scripture and prayer and food and family and relationships and beautiful experience, it leads our hearts into glorious worship. Haley Barton from her book, Sacred Rhythm, says this, I know what it is like to rest long enough to find energy to delight in something. Good food, a good book, a leisurely walk, a long-awaited conversation with someone I love. I know what it is like to feel joy and hope and peace flow back into my body and soul, though I thought it might never come again. I know what it is like to see my home and my children through the Sabbath eyes of enjoyment. I know what it is, <clears throat> what it is like to have rest turn into delight and delight turn into gratitude and gratitude into worship. Mercy Commons, to avoid injury, to avoid plateauing, in your sanctification or worse, abandoning the faith, we must take strategic rest with great the great physician, as we cease all forms of work, rest in his presence, delight in his generous provision, and be led back into a state of wonder, of wonder and worship and praise. Just one more from Tyson. It says, Sabbath cannot save your soul, but it may save your life. And a movement of rest has begun in the middle of New York. That's where his church is based. I see a new kind of disciple rising, those who know what work, uh, know that work is a gift but not a God, and that more money and praise don't add to the bottom line of their worth before God. God is rising up people who live at a sacred pace, who value formation as much as fame, relationship as much as recognition, and abiding more than outcomes. Those who are deadly serious about learning Jesus' way of life and rest, those who refuse the relentless rhythm of culture and choose to live for him alone. Ben, you can come up here. <clears throat> Guys, just one simple analogy, and I'm going to pray. Um, when something funny happens with Jacqueline and I, when we don't spend enough time together, we like get mad at each other. We're like... <sighs> Right? And the reality is, we've talked through this enough, it's just like, I just miss you. And like, I'm mad at you for m missing you. And things, I, like, if you know me really well, in my relationships, uh, I'm an Enneagram type three, my love languages are physical touch and words of affirmation. Um, and so one of my biggest fears is just rejection. And still to this day, there's certain things that Jacqueline will do that make that make me believe for a moment that she hates me. Like, not really, but I'm like, she's mad at me or she's not into me or something. Uh, talk to her about it if you want, it's true. But when I take strategic time and I take her out on a date and I kind of clear the distractions, all of those lies disappear. I feel like for some of you in the room today, it's been a long time since you've been on a date with your savior. 
that you believe that he doesn't want to be with you, you believe that he's really mad at you, or he's too busy helping other people to serve you in your difficulty and problems. Guys, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who has a light burden. If you are weary in any way, never run from him. He is the place that will articulate your true value. He will cast away every lie and accusation. And he will remind you of the thing that will never change. You are his son or his daughter, deeply loved by him. Can we be a community that, like it says in Hebrews, that we, we strive to enter this place of deep rest? And so, Lord, I just pray in this age where we can be blind to idols that are so prominent, Lord, may we not be a people that are apathetic to your kingdom or to your will. Lord, may we be a people that strive to be here on Sunday to, to worship you together, that, that aim to commune in life group and carve out moments of our day to be fully in your presence, to silence the accusation and to cease the striving of our souls. Lord, would you be with us? Would you change us? Would you help us to bring you much glory? Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.